Well, hello, everyone. We're recording this episode on Labor Day because Tiffany and I are we're so much hard workers that we actually are working on Labor Day. But it's 3.21 p.m. Eastern time as we're starting to record this. And today's episode will be titled, Tiffany Helps Me With My Homework. If you listened or watched the episode on having a purpose, I divulged that I have started a graduate school program in adult education, and I am required to do an interview and write a biography of an adult educator. And I was like, I have to do this two weeks early so that I can beat Kegel to Tiffany, and I don't get stuck interviewing her, because <laughs> just I'm not going to have that happen. All right, so you know who this week's guest is. It's Tiffany Johnson. Hi, Tiffany. Hi, Lee. How are you? I am doing well, and we're not going to do an intro because that's going to be part of the interview. Okay. <laughs> right. right. So what's going to happen is I'm going to ask Tiffany a series of questions that are to be used to write a biography about Tiffany. And I could probably do most of this most of this without doing the interview, but we're required to conduct at least a 30-minute in-person interview. So here we go. Tiffany? <laughs> yes. What is your educational background? And this question right here will take up 17 of the 30 minutes no, right here. I'm going to give you the short version. Um, <laughs> I uh, went to high school in Memphis, Tennessee. I went to the University of Miami for undergrad in Coral Gables, Florida. I went to law school at Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C. I got my master's degree at the University of Memphis in Memphis, Tennessee. And I am currently working on a doctor of education, EDD degree from Vanderbilt University. All right. You went to Miami for your undergraduate degree. Mm -hmm. And what is your undergraduate degree? It's in English. Okay. Uh Literature or writing? Poetry, actually. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I, know that. <laughs> I knew that you went to Miami, but I didn't know it was for poetry. Yep. So are you a poet at heart just hiding behind all the rest of this stuff? Uh, I don't know. That would explain some things, though. But <laughs> but I guess that ha that remains to be seen. All right. And then <laughs> it was on from, how did you get from Memphis to Miami? So funny story. I um I was all prepared to go to the University of Memphis, my hometown school, and um I had turned down a scholarship to the University of Miami um because I wanted to dance. Uh one of the things that I've taught in all of my different <laughs> teaching lives is dance. And I wanted to go to the University of Memphis and, and be on their competitive dance team. And I got into a huge fight with my dad. And um, in an act of rebellion, I drove to Miami the week before school started and begged them to give me my scholarship back and begged them to give me a room in the dorms, which, of course, were already full at that point. And somehow I managed to talk my way into going to the University of Miami. All right. And you did all four years there, undergrad? Yes. Yeah, well, I did three years there. Um, of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I get bored easily, kind of like you, Lee. And so mm -hmm. I, I was taking probably more classes than than I should have been taking. And one semester, my graduate advisor just said, hey, you know, you can walk this semester if you want to. I was like, 
okay. So I graduated a year early. Uh, I had a professor in one of my undergraduate degrees that was a seven-year undergrad because he kept changing his major. And one day he walked into his advisor's office. He got a note, come see me. He goes into his advisor's office and there's the advisor and then they hand him a bachelor's degree in interdisciplinary studies and tell him to get out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was probably on my way there. I changed a couple of times, but I just was, I had overloaded my schedule so much that Mm -hmm. I had accumulated enough credits to go ahead and walk. So I did. I finished my bachelor's in four years, but that did include a major change. Mm -hmm. So I probably could have, if I'd have gone with the major that I ended up graduating, I probably could have done it in three. Yeah. Three and a half. half. I was, my major change was, I swung from one polar end to the other. I was, I was a math major for a while. Um, I was a business major for a while and I was an English major for a while. The the whole time I knew that I was more interested in, in creativity. Um, but I didn't want to major in like art or something like that just because I, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do something that risky. And, and of course my dad was breathing down my neck about employability, um, so English seemed generic enough and it seemed to be the most, the con- most conducive to a wide array of potential postgraduate, um, options. Seeing as I had no idea what I was going to do at that time. Um, so that's what I did. Yeah. Uh, I started out as a middle grade education major and was going to, you had to certify in two different fields. And so I was going to certify to teach social studies and English. So we got that in common, uh, except for I was all on the, gra- uh, the grammar and writing side, not the, the literature side. Yeah. And, you know, I got to my senior year and bureaucracy happened. And it's like, you're not going to be allowed to have a job while you do your student teaching. I was like, I can't do that. I'm, a, I'm paying my own bills. Yeah, and I so I was closer to a political science degree than anything. And so that's what I got. Uh, because of all the social science classes I've been taking uh, towards that teacher certification. If I had stayed one more semester, I could have turned my master, excuse me, my minor in history into a double major, or I could have ended up with a second minor in English. I was only two classes away from that. So, yeah, I could have got there. (laughs) So then it was on to Georgetown Law School. Yes. Tell us about that. Um, well, as I mentioned, I, I graduated early unexpectedly. So I wasn't, I hadn't been doing all the stuff you're supposed to do to prepare for graduation. Didn't have a job lined up, didn't know what I was going to do. So I very hastily started applying to different schools, law schools. Um, my dad, uh, was a lawyer, well, was a judge for 30 some odd years. And, uh, I was kind of running from that legacy, really just continuing that rebellious streak. I, you know, I'm going to be my own person and, you know, don't have to follow in his footsteps or whatever, but that was kind of a futile exercise. And uh, I knew I was probably destined to do something in the legal field. Um, 
And he was he was super happy that I finally decided to do it. So he was very supportive and, and helped me in that and uh, just applied to a bunch of schools. Georgetown was probably the, um, you know, the 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 best school that accepted me. And I thought D.C. was interesting at that time. I had never been to Washington, D.C. So I said, sure, let's try this and packed up and left. All right, folks, there is a running joke between Tiffany and I. Excuse me, between Tiffany and me, because that's the object of a revolution. <laughs> uh, just for being English nerds here today. Uh, I was going to tell your English teacher. Uh, as you, you've heard, Tiffany grew up in Memphis, but she went to Georgetown Law. <laughs> and Tiffany sounds like a Georgetown lawyer when you hear her talk. <laughs> but occasionally you get little glimpses of Memphis. And it has been a goal of mine for years to make her completely lose it and go inner city Memphis on someone. And it's been close, close really close. <laughs> I mean, really close one time because she texted me when she was like really mad at someone. Like, and they're on the other side of the room. She texted me like, "You better pay attention. It's about to happen. It's about to happen." <laughs> yeah, and, but 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 really she uh, uh, she <laughs> maintained her composure, and I didn't get my goal there. So. Hey, the night is young. It could happen at any time. Don't lose hope, Lee. <laughs> Don't lose hope. <laughs> All right. And so out of law school, what did you do? I taught high school. I went back to Miami and taught um, um, English, basically, at a, a local inner city, <laughs> Miami High School, one of the oldest high schools in Miami, and Miami Northwestern Senior High. And um, let's see, then my dad got sick, and I rushed back home to Memphis. And that was when I decided I wanted to come back to Memphis. Um, and so I did, and I, but I didn't have any plans, didn't know what to do, moved back with my mom. I uh, landed a job as a paralegal, um, worked there for a year. And then I, I, no joke, this is only a mild exaggeration, but there was basically like an intervention at the law firm one day. All the lawyers descended around my little cubicle and they all basically said, you know, what the blank are you doing? And I was like, what are you talking about? And, and so basically they they told me I need to take the bar because once again, I was running from the whole lawyer destiny. Um, and they just kind of told me I was wasting my time working as a paralegal and I needed to take the bar and go ahead and get this show on the road. So, so I did. Um, and that started my legal career in Memphis. All right, so we've gone to undergrad, we've gone to law school, but we use that to go back and do a job that we could have done with our undergraduate degree. Yes. And then we move back home to Memphis and we take a job that we could have done without any of that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure that we're all keeping I, score. I am a wayward soul, Lee Weems. You know this <laughs> as well as anyone. <laughs> all right. If, how long did you practice as an attorney? Uh, only about three years. Okay. Not that long. Well, it, well, I represented clients for about three years. I practiced for probably 15, 20. Right. Um, but after three years of working as a litigator, um, that was around the time when my dad passed away. And it was, as you know, super traumatic. And it was a really tough time for me. It was kind of what do I do next? You know, where's my North Star? What's, um, what am I supposed to do? 
Um, so I walked away and I started while I was while I was litigating, um, it had become the norm for other attorneys, my colleagues to kind of trade tasks with me. And it would go something like this. Hey, Tiff, if you write my brief for me, I'll do your deposition for you. Or, you know, that kind of thing, like task swapping. And everybody started asking me to write their briefs. So um, so I took a stab at just doing that. And um, that actually ended up being my full-time legal career for the next 15 years. I was a freelance brief writer. Um, and I just, other attorneys hired me to write their briefs for them. Okay. All right. And then we got a master's degree from Memphis. Yes. Um, so the master's degree was kind of limping along for a long time. I I dabbled in graduate coursework starting in Miami when I was teaching at the high school. Um, and I would just kind of take a class here, take a class there. So that master's degree was probably at least 10 or 12 years in the making. Um, it wasn't till pretty recently, you know, a couple of five years ago that I that I just kind of buckled down and, and knocked out the remainder of the coursework to go ahead and finish the degree. Um, and at the time I was teaching at the University of Memphis. So I finished it there because tuition was covered. So I already had after Miami and Georgetown, I have more than enough student loan debt. So I didn't need any more, even with the scholarships. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, you know, it was convenient to take classes while I was working at the University of Memphis. So I was freelancing. My my legal practice was the freelance legal writing, which freed up a lot of time for me to teach. And as you know, I love teaching. And I started out as an adjunct um, at a local community college. Then I moved to adjuncting at the local university. And then I moved to being a coordinator of the program, the legal studies program. And so it, it's a small program, but we had about eight or nine, 10 on, you know, at, at, when when we had an increase in the student body, uh, faculty members who were all full-time attorneys and um Yes, it's an undergraduate legal studies program that I coordinated at the University of Memphis for um, almost 10 years. All right. And what was your master's degree? It was in rhetoric and technical communication. So it's a subset of English. It's still communication, um, but but specifically rhetoric, which is kind of reminiscent of my legal background and my um, my love of persuasive writing. And that leads us to your doctorate student now? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm working on an EDD at Vanderbilt. And the program is, um, it's called Leadership and Learning in Organizations. So it's, they, they have two separate EDD programs. One is more geared towards um, the administration track, mm -hmm. either in secondary or in post-secondary education. And the other is more geared towards private industry. And it has three components. It's um, data analytics, um, adult learning, and um, organizational development, leadership, that kind of thing. Right. And your current full-time job now is you work training lawyers, correct? Yes, I um I was so and when I was freelancing, there were a couple of components to my business. One was lawyers would hire me to write their briefs, but I also taught CLE classes or continuing legal education classes. 
and um, and it kind of got a bit of a reputation for that. I was also doing document design and 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 working on designing trial exhibits and things like that, different ways to communicate. Everything I did, I started to notice this running theme. It all had to do with communicating messaging from one person to another. Um, and so that led me to, I, I did a brief stint at a law firm as director of training, where I was training their lawyers in-house. And that led to um, an opportunity with LexisNexis, which is a legal research company. And so I work now, technically I'm housed in their marketing department, um, but we have a team of presenters and we basically give training presentations internally to some extent, but for the most part, externally to our customers all over the country, um, teaching them how to optimize their use of LexisNexis online legal research tools. All right. So is the old saying true that law schools teach law, not how to be a lawyer? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and so what you're doing on the backside is basically teaching them how to do lawyer things. Y yes. Teaching them how to do one aspect of lawyer things. Right. Yes. Yep, for All sure. Right. All right. Well, the second question uh, that the professor had proposed was about work experience, but I think we pretty well covered that, except for... And I don't guess we really need to go into it a lot here because anybody that's listening to the show is already going to know who you are and the whole firearms thing and adult education. <laughs> stuff yeah, well. that, that, that little, that little detail. <laughs> right. So I, I can just go cut and paste from other episodes. <laughs> well, it's funny we, it, that we hadn't talked about that at all, but, but sure. the firearms thing happened alongside the entire uh, chronology that I just, that I just laid out, you know? So I, 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 first laid my hand on a gun while I was in my last year of law school and everything from, you know, that got me to where I am now working with you and range master and Tom and all that, that all happened parallel to everything else that I was just explaining. There you go. All right. And of course now we've, there's previous episode on the gateway instructor program and all the stuff that you do. So go back. There's, there's what, two other episodes that have featured you. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody go back, scroll through the, the episodes and look for Tiffany. <laughs> All right. So what do you find rewarding about educating adults? I like seeing, this is super cliche, but I like seeing that the light bulb come on, particularly with adults when they realize that it's not too late um, to do something new, take a turn, try a different tack, do it, do something they, they never thought they could do. Um, those moments are pretty plentiful when you're teaching children because every experience is new. But with adults, it's really easy to become complacent and assume, even without meaning to do so, that you've kind of your life has taken the shape it's going to take. You know the things you need to know and everything else is kind of window dressing at this point. And I love seeing people come to the realization that I can learn just as much now as I did my first day of first grade. And hey, this whole adulting thing doesn't have to be just about being responsible. It can still be fun. It can still involve discovery. It can still be creative. Um, it can still bring interesting and new twists and turns well we're going to backtrack here for a second because 
question just popped into my mind on the educational thing. What possessed you to go back and get a get a doctorate after all of this? <laughs> so possession is probably a perfect word for it um, because <laughs> on paper it honestly doesn't make a whole lot of sense if uh, if I'm being if I'm being straight up with you, Lee. But I was just fascinated. I I I saw a little teaser, I think it was on LinkedIn or something like that, about the program. I had never thought about getting an EDD because I assumed it was for people who wanted to be high school principals or deans or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but this program is different in that it's got these three tracks. And in my first few classes, I've already done everything from, you know, kind of business analytics to HR. And it's it really is kind of a jack of all trades type of degree for people who are primarily interested in educating adult learners, but doing so in lots of different contexts outside of traditional um, academia. So that interested me very much. And things are going really well at Lexis, and I'm seeing a lot of potential for, um, you know, maybe building new teams, trying new projects. And so I wanted to have that background handy in case those opportunities arose in the future. Yeah, I think we swapped a message this weekend. It was like, why did I do this to myself? And your response was, I'm right there with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> These are self-inflicted wounds. They are. They are. For All right. sure. <laughs> All right. So what do you find most challenging about teaching adults? Hmm. Uh, I suppose I go back to the first, the thing that I said was, was most rewarding. You know, it's kind of a double-edged sword or um, there's two sides to that coin because whereas children go into learning expecting to acquire new knowledge, Adults tend to do. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The opposite. They Even if they go into learning without having been forced to do so, you know, like open enrollment classes that people sign up for. Oftentimes, whether they realize it or not, adults aren't expecting to experience anything palpably changing their life. You know, like they just, a lot of it is is box checking. A lot of it is maybe kind of just sort of a hobby that they could do with or do without. Um, so even when they're looking forward to a class, adults rarely expect there to be lasting change as a result of adult learning. And uh, and that that is a challenge, as you know. Um, it may be less of a challenge for open enrollment type classes than it is for classes that are imposed on people by government mandates or whatever. Um, but it's still a challenge because we have to open people's minds to the possibility that, hey, you know, you can have that feeling of that aha moment the same way you did when you first learned that two plus two equals four. Yeah. One of my big frustrations 
has been, you know, the difference between, say, the open enrollment classes and those who are basically prisoners in training. They're not students, they're prisoners. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, like, in my state, if you're a peace officer, you are required to get 20 hours of continuing education a year. And then some of those 20 hours are mandated and they're box checking. Mm-hmm. And so you fight that mentality of I'm just here to get my 20 hours and the like, you know, they want to walk in when class, if it says class is supposed to start at eight, they come walking in at 7.59 and sit down or they show up at the range at 7.59 not ready to go, et cetera. Mm-hmm. They want a two hour lunch and they want to leave by three and still get credit for eight hours of training. Mm-hmm. Um, my biggest source of frustration on that point of view is I expect professionals to at least know the basics of that are required of them in their profession. And I get very frustrated with those who come to what is supposed to be advanced training or continuing education training who don't even know the things that they're supposed to know to already be doing their job and I've let it show and that has been a big impediment uh, for me on for relating to those students uh, way back to one of Jerry McCown's two episodes he talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs which I know from my studies in public administration as a workplace motivation factor he related it to the education side which is what kind of got my ball rolling and started me into this program is looking for things is you know at the top of their maslow's hierarchy triangle is ego and self-actualization and if you damage a student's ego you you've lost that student for forever and you know i can point to my troubles on the professional side at the job where it's like, what do you mean? You don't know that you got that in the, you know, or, or <laughs> I, I know you've been taught this for, cause I've taught it to you four times myself, you know, et cetera. Yeah. And you lose those students instead of treating them as if they are still customers. Whereas on the open enrollment side, I would see the reviews of my teaching was like, he's got a relaxed teaching style. So that kind of stuff. And I, I had to really come to Lee meeting with myself it's why are there these two differing views of my teaching style and so i started trying to approach the professionals the prisoners the same way i approached the open enrollment circuit and i heard you know one of our people say you know what you know now that you don't teach like you used to teach (laughs) okay i I think there was a compliment there (laughs) But yeah. that has been one of my greatest, greatest frustrations in, in dealing with the, quote, prisoner students. And it's like, how do you address the people that aren't there? Because here's the thing. As you and Ox say, they ain't you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, and it sounds like you you maybe have discovered or reached a similar conclusion. But I think at the end of the day, the best approach there is to treat all of your students the same way um because even though folks who come to you willingly have done just that 
that doesn't mean we get to take for granted that they're going to enjoy our class or that they're going to want to stay or that they're going to learn anything we teach, you know? So I have to approach those folks like, you know, there's a lot at stake. Here's my one chance to deliver this message to them. And if I don't do it right, the message will get lost. That's true whether the students are there of their own volition or whether they're there because they've been mandated to be there. And so the more you think about it, the more that line between those two groups kind of disintegrates, at least from the instructor's standpoint. Um, student motivation, of course, is very different in those two groups. But if you if you approach them differently, I you know, I, I think it's 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 kind of like approaching gun safety differently if the gun's loaded versus unloaded. You know, why would you do that? Just treat them all like the stakes are as high as they ever could be. And then your performance will match those standards, regardless of who your students are. What barriers, if any, do you see are, are there for adults participating in education? Time. Uh, time and resources are, are are the biggest barrier. So do how do I fit this into my schedule? How do I find the money for this? Um, a lot of times adults see investments in themselves more like um, purchases, you know, like I can either have this money or I can have this thing that I'm about to buy. I can't have both. Um, it's It's very zero sum. And so we have to work on cultivating that investment mentality, whereas it's it's more complicated than just trading money for a, a commodity um, and that the returns are ongoing. So, so yeah, it, it, that's, that's a tough nut to crack for most of our potential students, especially since they're making these decisions in many cases before they've even met us, right? Um, so from a student perspective, resources are the biggest barrier, particularly because with adults, we tend to view resources as being zero sum. And I found that it's actually not that way. It's kind of a paradox. Um, and so it's not quite like draining a bank account where either the money's there or it's not. It's a little more complicated than that when we're when we're investing in learning opportunities, but you don't get the chance to make that case to your students until you actually get them in your class. Yeah. On the firearms open enrollment side, one of the things that is I guess amusing and bemusing is you'll see someone they'll either inquire about a class or they'll respond in a post about a class that's upcoming or whatever. I just can't swing it financially. Yeah. And then they buy their sixth <laughs> handgun of the year, yeah. you know, or whatever. And well, I get wanting the thing. It's like, dude, I see pictures of your targets. I think you'd be better off <laughs> spending the time on getting some coaching and yeah. your money on the coaching. And I guess the, one thing is, what do they see value in? Well, yes, for sure. And this is another one of the biggest differences between andragogy and pedagogy. Like when you're teaching children, it goes without saying that at the very least, you have to get this signal, right? In order to function in, in 
today's society in a first world country, um, your odds of success go down dramatically if you don't at least have a high school diploma. So mm -hmm. even students who are firmly convinced that they're not learning anything in high school um, still have a motivation to get a high school diploma. That is the, those tables turn with adult education. And we actually, we as instructors, we have to work harder to convince students that it is worth the investment, right? That there is something worthwhile coming out of this, particularly when it's mandated and not, you know, not students coming to you for open enrollment. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's tough. It's a paradox. You know, if they'd have told me in high school algebra and geometry classes that I might use this, those skills at some point on something ballistically related or reconstructing a wreck, I might would have paid attention. But this whole abstract thing of it'll help you with your logic and your critical thinking, nah. <laughs> you think that you can add letters and numbers together. I just ain't buying it. You know, give me words. <laughs> it's... it's all right. Uh, how do you go about planning a session or a program for adults? Wow. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll give you the lawyer answer there. It depends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a really broad question. But mm -hmm. um, as you know, because you've done the same thing, I mean, I, I, I've, I've planned a program for adults that's 30 minutes long and online. Mm -hmm. And I've planned a program for adults that's four years long um, and hybrid on ground online and involving multiple faculty. So it varies <laughs> quite greatly, but right. I guess the common thread would be um, outlining or storyboarding. Uh, but if you go even before that, and look at these sort of like Addy model theories and that sort of thing, you, you've got to, particularly for open enrollment, you've got to um, address the needs in the market, first of all, to decide what you're teaching. A lot of times in open enrollment, that part gets taken for granted. And usually it's a function of instructors designing classes that they would enjoy rather than designing classes that fit their students or their potential students. Um, and the two don't always meet neatly. Um, so, but yeah, but once I've done the market analysis, of course, assuming we're in an open enrollment environment, um, then I, I set about outlining and storyboarding. So in other words, you can't have muscles before you have bones. Um, so I'll put together the skeleton first and then I start adding meat to the bones. And that's where the editing process happens, where I figure out what parts are top heavy, what parts are bottom heavy, what parts are more expendable, what parts are critical, what order everything should go in, how I'm going to inc include um, interactive components, how am I going to keep my audience involved, all of that sort of thing gets kind of added on after the outlining and storyboarding. Right. So you're saying there has to be a design process. <laughs> Who would have thought, you know, what, what I, I, I don't know where you're talking about, Lee. And I, and I've heard somewhere that there's supposed to be these things called lesson plans at some what? point. too. I don't know what's up with that. I, I, that's just silly. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, we'll let you all go. Let you guys behind the curtain of the inner workings of branch master. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes just, because I can, I frustrate <laughs> Tiffany by like 
making up names for classes. And then when she asks what's it about, I don't know, I'll wing it when I get there and and the like, just to make that eyebrow twitch. Because like I've said, I'm going to get inner city Memphis at some point, even <laughs> if I have to inflict it on myself. <laughs> I'm getting better at resisting your 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 needling though. I'm getting better at it. No, See, you're not. I got you like three times the last time we were together. So it was Yes, but the last time you have to admit the last time I handled it a lot better than I did the first time when when even you made fun of me because my eyeballs were about to pop out of my head. The last time it was just more like, okay, all right, just Lee's messing with you. Just ignore it. Walk away. It'll be good. Then yeah, get better. She- I need the title for your class. It doesn't have one. <laughs> She's not really. What's the name of your class? All right. Uh, classroom stuff. <laughs> and that was actually the name of the class. That was what was on the PowerPoint. Yep. Yep. All right. <laughs> what do you wish you knew more about in terms of being an adult educator? Hmm. I wish I were more formally well-versed in human psychology. Um, if if I had all day and unlimited resources of time and money, I would probably study that formally, get another degree in psychology, just because I think it is such a bedrock of all human learning. Um, there, it, people think that learning is about the brain, but it's really not as much about the brain as, as it is about the mind. And um, if I had a background in, in human psychology, I think it would be really helpful in teasing out some of the some of the hiccups that you encounter when it comes to things like motivation. And, and a lot of instructors, um, both in academia and outside of academia, have this attitude that my job is to deliver the instruction you can take it or leave it you know and that's cool I guess I mean that's one way to approach it if you are an instructor-centered educator um, if you're a student-centered educator then you're not satisfied with that inquiry. I can't just say, well, I'm going to put together this class and either you like it or you don't. I am also interested in how I can get you to believe, as I do, that this is important and how I can convince you to want this rather than just accept it. Um, And the only way to do that is by understanding how human minds work which is a separate topic from how human brains work. Yeah. You know, I've already mentioned Maslow and the hierarchy of needs. Um, This whole process has been like a year in the making, and I finally just had to go back to school to do it to satisfy my curiosity. my master's degree is in public administration. And while I did the generalist track, because I took whatever classes were available most of the time, um, or that worked with my work schedule, my two main area of focuses were organizational theory and public employment law. And I, not every one of my classes fit into one of those things, because the way the MPA program where I went worked was you could pick a specific specialty track or you could do the general thing and I would have been it took me four years taking one class at a time 
uh, to get through graduate school. And if I had tried to do the pick one of the tracks, I, I'd, I'd still be there trying to get the, get the ones to do them. In the organizational theory classes, which dealt a lot with you know worker motivations and, and the like, I did not look at some of that material and think about how it applied to the instructor side of things because that was not my focus back then at the time mm -hmm. you know my focus was on running and learning how to run an organization it was not necessarily on the teaching and training aspects now ironically i was appointed chief deputy because of my teaching and training activities that were going on and the sheriff brought me in because he wanted to change the culture of his organization and that was one of the other things of organizational theories how do you change the culture of an organization mm -hmm. and he wanted to change it from i want to get away from this i got to get my 20 hours and i'm good to i've got to prepare his mindset was he had to prepare the organization or transform it from 20th century deputy and the 21st century deputy and, you know because what was going on wasn't going to be acceptable in the world that 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 was coming and he's like i need somebody to come in and do this that, that can change these things and i fought some battles along the way and if i had known a little bit more about like you're saying human psychology um there's a lot of things people accepted and they did now here's the other painful lesson that i've learned and i wrote about this extensively for last week's homework was I've learned that a lot of times the change agent is no longer wanted once the change has been occurred, has been achieved. And that's something you got to look out for. For those of you who think that you're going to battle the institution and change it, you may win the battle, but you got to watch out for the war. Because here's, here's my one piece of advice as I tell young guys that are hard charging in to farm to try. I'm going to fix these things in my agency and all this kind of stuff. The institution always wins. <laughs> always wins. And you may win the battles, some of them, but eventually the inertia is going to get there and it's going to, if you become the thorn, they'll just remove the thorn. So you've got to find a way to win those battles without being a thorn. And <laughs> that is the biggest hurdle, I think, for all of us type A firearms trainers in law enforcement organizations mm -hmm. is that we, we want we go beat our heads against those walls and crash against those waves. Yeah. And then eventually they just go, you're no longer there. You're over here. And yeah, there it is. All right. Let me go back and see what the next question was supposed to be. <laughs> We Would saw. you recommend your career to others? And if so, why? And if not, why? I guess we'd have to pick which one. Which of your one? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, probably have to split that one up. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's a, at the risk of insulting your, your uh, graduate professor or whoever designed this assignment I'm not sure that's a terribly well-crafted question um because the answer is it depends I mean you know I 
if there to anyone who's interested in doing the things that I do, yes, absolutely. I would recommend my career to those folks. Um, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't think it was a worthwhile endeavor. Um, I mean, I would certainly have advice for people who were interested in either of my career tracks, but but I haven't regretted a single one of them. And even if I had, that would not lead to my discouraging someone else from following that career path because what doesn't work for me might work perfectly well for somebody else. So I'm not really sure I understand that question. Um, but if I had to answer it, I guess I would say, yes, I would recommend um, folks who are interested in law. Absolutely. Worthwhile endeavor. Do it. Um, make sure that you are, in fact, asking yourself the right questions and that you are accurately assessing whether it is a good fit for you. Um, you know, for example, if you're if you want to be a lawyer because you think all lawyers are rich, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, no, not so much. Um, if you want to be a lawyer because you're fascinated by those dramatic Perry Mason moments in 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 TV shows, um, you know, yeah, also not not the life, not typically. Just like I'm sure Lee, you you would have some some choice words for anybody who wants to be a TV style cop. Um, I, I just, I guess, regardless of whether we're talking to somebody who's interested in law or somebody who's interested in, in teaching at any, any level or, or somebody who's interested in the firearms thing or whatever, um, I would just challenge you to make sure you ask the right questions of yourself and of that profession and make sure that you are, um, you know, matching yourself based on the appropriate criteria and not based on any misconception or outdated ideas. All right. Well, I'm going to ask it this way. Did you intend to end up where you are right now? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, so I guess that's a much more interesting question. So thank you for that, Lee. Um, what I would say in response to that, to anybody considering career options is uh, don't pigeonhole yourself. And even if you feel in your heart of hearts that this is what I want to do, I've always wanted to be X since I was, you know, since I was five years old or what have you, that's great. Follow that dream, but still don't pigeonhole yourself because you don't want to, you don't want to have blinders on and be so, um, you know, so focused, have such tunnel vision that you miss opportunities that pop up in your periphery. Would you trade the path that you have taken and has gotten you to where you are now for the path that you originally attended? No, but I, I, Again, if, I, if I'm honest, at the risk of making myself look like a complete screw up as a young adult and, and teenager, I, I didn't really have a path. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew what I didn't want to do. And I knew what I thought was fun. But none of the things that I enjoyed particularly struck me as viable career paths. Um, that might have been short-sighted on my part, but one thing that I definitely did as a young adult um, to at my own expense, unbeknownst to me at the time, 
was separate out my aspirations for personal fulfillment from my aspirations for professional fulfillment. And what I'm learning now um, is that they don't have to be separate. It's fine if they are, but I took for granted back then that they were necessarily separate. And I'm learning now that that's not, not always the case, doesn't have to be the case. That was excellent. I'm actually over here typing notes right now because I'm going to make sure <laughs> I work that in the in the biography. Well, cool. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I would not trade everywhere I've been for everywhere I intended to go. But I'm also at a point that I'm not happy where I am at the moment mm -hmm. and I'm facing some crises on a personal level of if I change professional at this point that's I risk losing a lot of the personal connections that I have and that's the one that's one of the things that's grappling all of my friends active friends you know now are either old cops that I've known from when I was a rookie or people from the firearms training room. And if I make the professional career changes that I'm kind of looking at, that's going to very much limit my access to the firearms training room. And it's like, you know, don't want to be, don't want the frustrations in the professional life that, that are on my plate right now. Mm -hmm. And is it, but I, if I fix those, am I going to be frustrated in my personal life? Yeah. And that, that's really a battle and it's really a crisis of conscience going right now. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, I get it. I mean, I, uh, I've been there. I'm certain, mm -hmm. certainly, uh, not beyond that. I mean, mm -hmm. my career as, as we discussed earlier has taken a bunch of weird turns. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I certainly am not, am no expert on these kinds of, of dilemmas, but I do uh, think that, um, and actually one thing that we're studying now in one of my graduate coursework courses is, um, the, um, the utility of paradox and how both in organizations and in our personal lives, we, it would behoove us to embrace paradox more so than, prematurely leaning into kind of either or thinking, um, getting back to that whole zero sum mentality. Um, and, you know, you and I can talk offline about this as, as friends, but, but just when you have two choices that seem mutually exclusive, a lot of times what's actually happening is you have a paradox there. And the difference between a paradox and a choice is that with paradox, not only are they seemingly mutually exclusive, but the two choices are actually interdependent. So you, you're you not just um, able to, to have your cake and eat it too, but you necessarily must in order to approach the decision in a healthy way. So how do you deal with paradoxes? You have to peel away the surface level questions and get at the root issues. You know, in other words, like with, with, a, with being faced with leaving, deciding whether to leave a job, you know, 
is the real issue the job itself or is the real issue the salary? Is the real issue the, the connections that you have? And if so, do those connections actually break when you leave the job or do you have opportunities to preserve those connections ex extra professionally? Um, is the real issue um, you know, dissatisfaction with leadership or is the real issue dissatisfaction with day-to-day -day function? In other words, you have to interrogate yourself to get at the 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 heart of the matter. And, and oftentimes that reveals ways that you can solve two problems at once and without having one solution be at the expense of the other, you know? So it's, it's, it's much easier to talk about than to actually do. So don't, you know, don't get me wrong. I totally understand that. But um, I am personally, as a friend of yours, I am excited to see what this next chapter of yours will bring uh, because I, because I am close to you and I know how you think. And I know um, that, you know, you're, you're going to be thoughtful about this and deliberate. And you also know yourself really well, which is important for not making bad decisions. And so, I mean, I just, I just have a feeling that things are going to get interesting for you in all the best ways. <laughs> well, I'm glad one of us is excited about it. That is not the word that, uh, that I would have used. Uh, you know, of course, here's part of the thing about it being an adult is I got other people that depend on me. If this was just me, this decision would be really, really, yeah. really easy. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'd, I'd have already pulled, I've already done it. If it and was I, just, and me. I have to say that is that is one huge caveat, one huge asterisk that I have to put on any advice that I ever pretend to give to friends of mine, which is to say I don't have kids. So that yeah. that factor alone makes my experience completely different than anybody's who has a spouse or children. Um because you know that's obviously a big big consideration. So yeah. it uh when you have other people that you're responsible for, sometimes you gotta just suck it up and and do what you got to do. Yeah. And of course, what's funny is part of doing that's what led to me teaching college classes. Part of doing that's what led to me actually having an open enrollment firearm training business was mm -hmm. that because all I've ever done with the firearm training business was I rolled that money that came in from that into me going and taking classes and stuff that I otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to do. Right, right. Uh, because of my other obligations. And, you know, it's kind of one big circle that keeps... I don't get, think it's a circle. I think it's some crazy person on an extra sketch that just keeps going <laughs> Right. Well, yeah. Uh, I already know the answer to this last one because I've seen the presentation. It's one of the <laughs> 10, it's one of the 10 principles. Uh, should adults be lifelong learners? And, yeah. if, and what is your reasoning behind that? Um, if you're not learning, you're dying. Uh, it's it's kind of as simple as that. And I mean, everybody's going to die, right? You're not uh, going to be immortal now all of a sudden just because you decide to take a class here and there. That's not what I mean. But there is no stasis in humanity. You're always changing and you're either getting better, expanding, growing, um, you know, becoming exposed to new things or you're getting worse, you're retracting, you're forgetting, you are 
getting smaller, um, your world is shrinking. Those are kind of the only two directions there are to go in. And so if those are my two options, I'm going to pick the former, you know, um, as long as I am physically and mentally able, because they're, they're really, it's a huge myth that I can just coast, you know, I'm in a good spot. Let's just keep doing this. There's no such thing as stasis. Um, you're either moving forward or you're moving backward. That's it. Those are the only options. Well, of all the stuff we talked about today about who is Tiffany and Tiffany's role in adult learning, adult education, what should I have asked you about that I didn't? Oh, gosh. Oh. What would you like us to know? Jeez, you gotta hit me with that one. You didn't prepare me for that one, Lee. I'm not sure. Um, what would I like people to know? Who is my favorite range master kid? Oh, I know the answer to that. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody knows that. <laughs> oh gosh, let's see. I don't know. What do you think people want to know? Uh, <laughs> I, I should have posted a question in the group. What do you want to know about Tiffany? Maybe people are sick of hearing about Tiffany. Maybe nah, they don't want nobody's anything. sick of hearing about Tiffany. Um, let's see. I guess I would just say it's kind of cliche to ask people questions that reveal vulnerabilities. You know, what is your greatest weakness and that kind of thing. Um, so that's a little bit trite, but. I do hope that people know that we all have weaknesses and that we all have way more weaknesses than anybody would ever imagine. And so if anybody is the least bit impressed with anything that Lee and I have discussed today, please know that whatever you might consider to be an accomplishment came... <laughs> <laughs> um, with as large a dose of serendipity um, as as ability, you know, and, and, and I'm not trying to deny myself credit for anything that I've done. I mean, I'm proud of some of the things that I've done, done some things I'm not so proud of too. But my point is, I, you know, I've got all kinds of drama going on. I've got all kinds of imperfections. There's all kinds of hiccups and 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 just when you think, man, you know, that 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 Lee guy or that Tiff chick, she's just really got it figured out. No, we don't. <laughs> we, 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 we are struggling just like everybody else. And I I I really wish that we as a community would give ourselves more grace. Um, because even the people, it's always greener on the other side and everybody that you see, you're like, man, I just, I wish I could be more like that. Careful what you wish for. <laughs> We're all working hard. We're all doing the best we can and that's all we can do. Um, so I just, I just try to wake up every day and put one foot in front of the other, but, um, you know, some days are harder than others. And that's why I'm thankful for people like Lee and for all of my friends and and my support system. And it's just, it kind of, you know, that whole, it takes a village thing. That's not just with raising kids. That applies to your entire life. So appreciate the people in your life and don't take them for granted. There you go. There you go. What do you got coming up? Oh gosh, on which front? 
Um, <laughs> well, with Akil and Citizen Safety Academy, citizensafety.com, got to throw that out there. Um, if you watched the previous episodes, you know that our lane in the uh, firearms instruction community is gateway teaching. And so we've got our gateway instruction um, course coming up, got several of them this fall, not several, but we got two, three, two this fall. And I think we're getting ready to post another one for um, for early next year in the spring. Uh, let's see what else. I don't know what, oh, we have um, our presentation design webinar is coming up soon. That's also posted at citizensafety.com. Just click on calendar and you'll see it. But we we do a lot of online training and webinars and things of that nature. And we would always get these questions about like our PowerPoint slides and things like that. So we've finally been been convinced to offer a PowerPoint webinar, if you will. It's broader than that, though. It's more I call it presentation design because it is going to delve into a lot of different aspects of delivering an effective presentation. The majority of it is going to be nuts and bolts type stuff with PowerPoint slash Prezi, Keynote, whatever your slide presentation software is. But we're also going to talk more about kind of theory of presentation and tactics and, and you know, hardware, software, um, best practices, that sort of thing. So that'll be fun. Oh, I, I saw a PowerPoint slide the other day that may have very well sent you right into inner city. It, it uh -oh. may have. I almost <laughs> took a picture of it and sent it to you. It I'm glad you didn't. It was that bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I got to tell this story. We, we So the range master youngins, you know, we meet at Tom and Lynn's house and we spend a whole weekend arguing over what are the principles of being a range master instructor. And we basically codify the range master doctrine and we work on, you know, swapping emails and all sorts and such on finally putting this presentation together and we go to present it the very first time and like the night before it's like a friday night we're presenting it on saturday i get this message from tiffany i've made a couple of changes to this thing here's the latest version <laughs> and i'm in a hotel with very 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 bad wi-fi and i start to download it and it's taking four ever because tiffany put so much graphics and so much stuff in the thing just went to so finally i just gave up and said i'll go to bed and i'll get up early in the morning and i'll i'll look at it then and i got up the next morning and it was still downloading i'm sorry and just <laughs> like i walked in to do the presentation it's like yeah it's her fault i know what we're <laughs> gonna talk about and... he had videos that was him yeah. so i get well, to blame her for that one well, blaming Hearn is always an acceptable answer. There you go. See? It's always <laughs> an acceptable answer. All right. I have trigger management coming up on September the 23rd. There are just a couple of spots in that. That's going to be at Cisco, Georgia, which is up near Chattanooga, Tennessee, Dalton, Georgia area. Um, that class did not sell, did not sell, did not sell, and then all of a sudden it sold. Um, yeah. Right now I have on the schedule – and. For the last weekend in October at Red Hill Range, uh, an event I was calling Instructor Camp Interleaving, it ain't selling at all. And it's got like one person signed up for it right now. So I may in the next couple of days make the hard decision of pulling the plug on that and then trying to sell two one-day classes to do that because I've got to have money to pay tuition next, next, uh, 
in, <laughs> in January for the final two classes of this program. And um, that's about the only useful skill I have to get those other than going and like lifting the carrying stuff. So. <laughs> well, yeah. good luck. There we go. <laughs> well, Tiffany, thank you for your time on a holiday. Always a pleasure. <laughs> and uh, as always, thank you for your time and everything else. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Always Absolutely. Fun. And to the audience, we know that your most important asset is your time. Because Tiffany said so. That's right. <laughs> it's one of the answers to the questions. Thank you for choosing to spend it with us. <laughs>